Non-stop talk radio, streaming 24 hours a day. TalkZone.com TalkZone.com It's time for Healthy Talk Radio. Healthy Talk Radio with Julian Whitaker, MD, America's Wellness Doctor, and Deborah Ray, America's First Lady of Health. Coming to you live from the headquarters of the Global Health Network and across the world wide web. <gasps> Computers can do that? It's America's longest running radio program dedicated to your health and wellness. What's taking place here is an alternative approach. Get in on the phone lines now by calling 1-800-307-3002. Now, here's Dr. Whitaker and Deborah Ray. Good day. Welcome to Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray. Well, even Oprah is talking about it. Consuming exotic fruits like mangosteen and goji berries, they're particularly higher levels of antioxidants. And don't forget things like blueberries and cranberries. They can count, too. He is America's wellness doctor, our very own resident medical expert, Julian Whitaker, M.D., joining us today, uh, John Abramson. Dr. Abramson will weigh in as well. The author of Overdosed America will be talking about how some of those vested interests in medicine, well, they're coming to light with the orthopedic surgeons, uh, with medical research. Uh, we'll open up the phone lines, any of your health care questions with Dr. Julian Whitaker. Dr. John Abramson joining us today at 800 307 right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Now the news and views about the news you won't hear anywhere else. The Healthy Talk Radio News Digest. Our mission to provide that health care news and views from credible sources that you won't hear anywhere else brings to us Julian Whitaker, M.D. Dr. Whitaker, hello and welcome. Good morning, Deborah. So nice to be with you. So nice to have John Iverson on the line again. He's a good fellow. He is a good fellow. We've got a lot to talk about, but we'd be remiss not to mention what's in the current issue of the journal Diabetes Care, a 17-year study of over 4,000 men and women, a 40% lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes in those who had the highest levels of vitamin D, Dr. Whitaker. Really? Really. <laughs> oh, Deborah, you're a jewel. That's wonderful. So vitamin D reduces the uh, individuals who are moderately obese uh, by 40% from having um, uh, di- uh, diabetes. That's right. That's right. In fact, they suggested that vitamin D might be involved in the processes, as uh, you have educated us, uh, Dr. Whitaker, leading up to type 2 diabetes. But um, even when they adjusted for uh, uh, age, sex, the month when the blood samples were, were uh, obtained, a statistically significant inverse association between blood vitamin D level and the development of type 2 diabetes. And they were looking for uh, the relationship of vitamin D. That was the purpose of the study. They were. They were. Oh, my goodness. That is, all you have to do is look, and you can find that nutritional supplementation will pay huge dividends if people just would do it. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful bit of information. And the CDC, you know, they, they continue to, to survey these national health and nutrition exam surveys. Their commentary on this information is that, that 50% of mothers-to-be in the U.S., 60% of babies, uh, do not have sufficient levels of vitamin D that we're even seeing a resurgence of conditions like rickets, Dr. Whitaker. You know, it, it, uh, I think the, the, the status and the uh, development of our children, which is the basis of our culture to be in a very short period of time, 
you know, really concerns me. We've got Prozac and these drugs penetrating into infancy, you know, into two-year-olds. Uh, yet we can't even take care of them nutritionally, which is so easy and safe to do. Uh, we've got them loaded up with 14 to 20 vaccinations. By the time they're two years old, autism is through the roof. Yet we can't even give them vitamins and minerals when studies show they're deficient and studies show that the mother is deficient. There's just something very wrong with our whole system. They cannot engender health of its young. There's something very wrong with that. That is very good news, but it's also disturbing, as you might as you might know. Well, this is intriguing. We've heard it from you before, Dr. Whitaker, University of Michigan, uh, publishing in the current archives of otolaryngology, took a look at the fact that we have 36 million Americans with chronic sinusitis, millions more affected by allergic and non-allergic rhinitis. They actually did a study um, and found that saline irrigation, saline nasal irrigations, um, uh, experience much greater benefit in, in terms of both severity and frequency. They experience 50% lower odds of frequent nasal symptoms, including a better than 80% uh, uh, resolution of their sinus symptoms just with a simple nasal saline wash, Dr. Whitaker. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, and I've been telling patients for years, you get a eight-ounce glass of warm water, you put a half, a quarter to a half teaspoon of salt in it, stir it up, then you cup your hand, you pour water into the palm of your hand, you put it up to your nose, shut one nasal orifice, and suck this uh, salty water up into the other one. Do it on both sides. It's comfortable. It, it, it Then it irrigates. I've been doing that for years and having patients do that. We have what we call the neti pot. It's the same way. We uh, There's a patient of mine that said he would add a little chamomile tea to the salty water, uh, and that would get Im- improvement. But just the lavaging of the sinuses by sucking some salt water, warm salt water, you can do it at home. You don't have to buy anything, and it will uh, eliminate a lot of the problems of uh nasal congestion. Nothing could be simpler or less expensive than that. And it works, and it works. And if you just do it kind of even prophylactically, you know, after you get off an airplane flight, <laughs> great oh, yes. benefit there, too. I do it. I do it frequently. You know, and I have a little, um, some little salt there in my um, bathroom. Uh, I have a teaspoon so I can shovel it in and mix it up, and uh, I'm good to go. First thing I do with room service is ask for the salt shaker. <laughs> well, this comes from, not for your food. That's right. This comes from the University of Arizona, published in the journal Nutrition Research, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. So the gold standard, they took a look at patients with osteoarthritis who were willing to take 150 milligrams of pycnogenol, pine bark extract, huh? uh, daily, found... Um, uh, and this is this is pretty amazing. They found um, uh, of all the the indices for pain, stiffness, physical function, um, that by day sixty they had across the board improvement in all the signs and symptoms of inflammation and pain um, associated with osteoarthritis with just um, the the use of pycnogenol on a daily basis, Doctor Whitaker. And what do- what dose was that? Only 150 milligrams a day. 
That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, I learned something from you all the time. I did not realize, or had not heard before now, that pycnogenol was an anti-inflammatory and active um, therapy for uh, joint pain coming from inflammation. That's this is new, and very this is this is news I can use. Yeah. All of us can. All of us can. Well, you and I uh, often joke that just behind vitamin D, it's the fish oil show. This is an interesting corollary. Lay it on me. <laughs> Louisiana State University has been taking a look at the fact that fish oils are highly susceptible to oxidation. They uh-huh. started testing extracts of oregano and rosemary with fish oil. And they found if you heated fish oil... Uh, only about 15% of the EPA and DHA remained unless they added, and they were only adding 1% oregano or 1% rosemary. And then they found almost 70% of the DHA and EPA was still present when heated. So if <laughs> you're looking for a great agent. Well, that means cook your salmon with uh, oregano and sage, right? Absolutely. Oregano and rosemary. Rosemary, absolutely. Interesting. Wonderful, Deborah. And of course, uh, you know that that there's a huge market in preservatives in the food industry in this country, and we are now seeing you know major scientific presentations at these trade shows of of the you know the industry's food processing, focusing on the fact that they can save money and get a better response with less side effects by using spices for fruit, for food preservation, Dr. Whitaker. Oh, isn't that great? It is. And then, like, if you use the uh, Indian spices with the uh, curcumin and the turmeric, it'll save your brain. Right, right. Well, it's Duke University uh, anesthesiologists uh, trying to come up with some remedies for post-surgical pain and nausea and vomiting. Um, They now believe, thanks to 15 clinical trials, that more surgeons across the country should be turning to acupuncture, Dr. Whitaker. Oh, wonderful. We have um, two acupuncturists in my office. They are very busy. I bet they are. I bet they are. They they found across the board that post-surgery acupuncture is safe and effective for treating nausea, vomiting, and pain associated with surgery without the side effects. And acupuncture has been around, I think, six thousand years. Yeah, yeah. I can't figure out how they thought, how they discovered it. But they did, and it does work. It does. It does. We're going to be back. America's Wellness Doctor, Gene Whitaker, MD, joining us today. We invite you to go to the phone, 800-307-3002. John Abramson, MD, the author of Overdosed America, joining us as well. Any of your health care questions on Healthy Talk Radio. America's first source for breaking health care news and up-to-the-minute health care information. Healthy Talk Radio with Deborah Ray and America's wellness doctor, Julian Whitaker, M.D. And if you picked up the morning Wall Street Journal and read that a new set of professional standards from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons mandates that beginning in January... 
surgeons begin disclosing to patients any financial arrangements with industry that relate to patient treatment. You're going to hear more because we have a special guest joining America's Wellness, Dr. Judy Whitaker, MD. He is the author of a book that should be on your shelf, and you should be taking one to your practitioner as well, Overdosed America. You can find out more at overdosedamerica.com. Dr. John Abramson joining Dr. Whitaker and me here today. Dr. Abramson, hello and welcome. Hi, Deborah. It's a pleasure to be back with you. How Good are you? Good morning, Dr. Abramson. How are Julian, you? How are you? I am just fine. Nice to hear your voice again. Likewise. So, give so us what's your... new and different in the Overdosed America uh, situation? What's going well, on with you? Uh, well, there's a lot of things wrong. We got a lot to talk about this week. Uh, but right. let's start. Let's start with the um, article that Deborah just brought up uh, in the Wall Street Journal about mm-hmm. conflict about orthopedic surgeons declaring their conflicts of interest. Um, David Armstrong is an excellent writer, uh, the writer of that article, and the Wall Street Journal actually does the best medical reporting, I think, of any newspaper in the country. But I right. think they, I think they kind of missed it on this one. Um, they're saying that orthopedic surgeons should declare the companies that they're taking money from so that if your orthopedic surgeon is getting paid by a, <clears throat> a company that makes a hip replacement product or a shoulder replacement product, that everything will be square if you just tell your patient that you're getting paid by that company. But that's not the point. The point is that doctors have formulated, these, have formed these, fi- these financial relationships with um, the manufacturers of the devices, and people are getting cheated because their doctor's allegiance is no longer primarily to best serve the patient, but to serve these financial relationships. That's you know I couldn't agree more, John. But I I'm just wondering at, at, at and I had as soon as Deborah read the uh, the synopsis of that article, I like you will wonder what difference is that going to make. Um, you know, even in literature, in the in the scientific literature, they disclose financial associations uh, are supposed to in the uh, published article, but it doesn't seem to change anything. So I agree. I don't know what good this will do, other than uh, perhaps the only good I can see that it will do would be to uh, increase the awareness of the patient that there's a conflict there and ask about the conflict and perhaps put the doctor on notice uh, that the doctor is going to be more judicious in his judgments uh, relative to the conflict. And so it would massage the relationship a little bit in the patient's favor, but it's not going to make any major changes. I think you're right. Yeah, no, that's very well said. And uh, this comes up a lot in... um the disclosure of conflicts of interest uh, when people write journal articles. And the truth is that disclosing, just as you say, puts the reader on notice that it's, that there may be um, consequences of the financial relationships. But in order for a physician or medical student reader to discern the effect of the conflict of interest, he or she would have to know as much as the authors know about the material that's being written. And, and then, they don't. They don't. Yeah. And then the scariest huh. part is that the authors themselves don't have access to their own data. So that the fact of disclosing the conflict of interest doesn't, it, it puts people on notice, but it doesn't tell people, it doesn't help people to understand 
better what the real truth is. I, absolutely. I think, Ms. John, the, uh, the, the, the uh, major problem that we have here with the pharmaceutical industry is that the, the use of the patent gives them a carte blanche on, on pricing mechanisms or pricing for the, for the drugs. It is opened up direct-to-consumer advertising, and now with the Medicare putting a big funnel into the national treasury to suck out money from Medicare to pay the drug companies at market prices, I think that um, the this is a huge problem that I don't think is, is solving itself or can be solved. I think one of the things, I thought about this, I want to get your opinion on it, what would it, what would ha- uh, be, as far as the pharmaceuticals is concerned, is to, you can't patent anything that is not natural going into a biological system. In other words, you can't patent a molecule that is not a part of the biological system uh, as a drug because what we're doing is we're allowing the patenting and the marketing of things that obviously don't belong in the biological system because they're compounds that have never been in the biological system. That would stop it short completely, but that won't happen. Um, There would be a reason for that, perhaps, by pointing out that uh, all of the biological systems have been worked with, uh, working with these molecules, these orthomolecular molecules, things that, that doctors do when they are trying to prevent disease with vitamin D or they're trying to improve disease, uh, improve health with nutritional supplements. They're working with these molecules that are part of the, part of biology, part of life. We have this wholesale patent of anything just because it's not a biological compound and all of a sudden there are tens of trillions of dollars flowing in to the pharmaceutical company that could use that money to manipulate the system to make people think they're really getting better taking 10 drugs a day. And, and to buy politicians' think? affection as well. All um, right. Julian, I, that's a, a possible way to cut it. The problem with that way is that it cuts off all innovation, uh, all private innovation. And um, In terms of uh, non-biological compounds, you're absolutely, absolutely right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and there is benefit. I, I'm not an anti-science guy. I'm just saying that... Uh, when we use science, we ought to be honest about it and not just tell our patients about the science that has commercial advantage. We ought to tell our patients yeah, about it. And I agree with you also. Yeah. One point about it cutting off innovation, how about the fact that because a molecule is biologically active, like coenzyme Q10 or the, or the arginine or ascorbic acid or vitamin D, you know, you cut off innovation and ha- having to use those because there's no patent. That's absolutely right. And, and See, so we're not so getting good research. We are rewarding, we're rewarding those who concoct the obviously toxic that's not in there. And we say, well, we don't want to cut off innovation on these uh, uh, strange molecules and punishing the real value of these molecules, which we are discovering daily that can engender health and we're persecuting those, so I'm, I'm not so sure that that we we've got it switched as to where I, yeah. our innovative sources should be uh, generating. Right. Um, but I, I understand your point. You're right. Yeah. And now, uh, if we could go back to uh, Plato's Republic and have <laughs> have an ideal state, I think what we would have is research that was publicly funded based on its merits based on the potential to create better health. And then 
the way the the patent. I spoke to the House Task Force on Prescription Drugs down in Washington, and um, one of the legislative aides came up to me afterwards and made a suggestion that is absolutely brilliant, but would only work in Plato's Republic, which is to deal with this patent issue by awarding financial prizes for new scientific discoveries based on their potential to help people. And and that would um, draw private money into innovation. But once the discovery was made, there's no patent, so that anybody can make the product and sell it. And I think that would solve most of the problems, though it's completely politically unfeasible. Well, I'm not sure it's, it's economically feasible in terms of uh, what would draw in the investor, the uh, prize no, money it would be for public the discovery. It would be public Excuse money. The, the, the public treasuries would reward innovation. Oh, okay. And they would reward innovation to the uh, uh, um, pharmaceutical companies. To whoever developed the new technology. But the, the real problem here, I think, is Dr. that the Abramson, pharmacy- hold that thought. We're going to okay. come back to that real problem with Dr. John Abramson, Dr. Julian Whitaker joining us today right here on Healthy Talk Radio. The information on Healthy Talk Radio may not represent the views of this network, this radio station, or its sponsors, but it might just be good for your health. Now, here's Julian Whitaker, M.D., America's wellness doctor, and Deborah Ray, America's first lady of health. With a very special guest joining us today, if you have not checked out Overdosed America, the author, John Abramson, M.D., joining us today, we're commenting about uh, what's uh, currently in the literature from the British medical journal, Drug Company Funding Appears to Influence Conclusions of Meta-Analysis, what's in today's Wall Street uh, Journal, talking about a new set of professional standards from the American Academy of uh, Orthopedic Surgeons, mandating that doctors, surgeons begin to disclose to you and me Healthcare consumers, financial arrangements with the industry, but we were talking about uh, you know that that lack of innovation, those me too <laughs> drugs, and and the real problem is is in your lap right now, Doctor uh, uh, Doctor Abramson. Yeah, the the pro- there's a core problem here, and I think we need to go to it, and I think it's really important, Deborah and Doctor Whitaker, for your listeners to understand how deep this problem is. The the fundamental issue is that the production of medical knowledge, what doctors believe to be true about medical science, has been taken over by the drug companies. I spend a significant amount of my time consulting for lawyers on the uh, drugs that have been misrepresented and oversold to the public and get to see the documents that show what the drug companies really know about their drugs and what they lead doctors to believe about their drugs and there is an enormous disparity so what's happened is we have a faith in science that scientific researches research produces facts that are true but the problem is that our science has been turned into an arm of commerce and it's more marketing so that this is hard to believe but most of the research is now funded by the drug companies and the other medical industries And that research used to be done in academic medical centers where professors played a role in designing the studies and carrying out the studies and had access to the data and oversaw the publication. Now, most three-quarters of that commercially sponsored research has been pulled out of academic medical centers and is now done by small for-profit research companies. 
And the shocking thing is that those small for-profit research companies are now getting bought up by the advertising agencies on Madison Avenue. And the reason so, for so therefore the, therefore the drug companies, John, just have a one step. The the advertising agency and the research companies are the same. They're the same, Julian, and that it makes perfect sense because the reason why the drug companies or any company for that matter invest in research is to maximize their return on investment for their shareholders. That's their exactly. job. That's their yeah. primary responsibility. And anybody well, who doesn't understand that as being naive and is going to get hurt. Well, public awareness is very important. Let's go over how people can get your book. They need to read this book. They need to have this basis, of, this knowledge as a basis of their communication with their physician. So uh, I know it's at Amazon.com. So just walk, walk us through, give us telephone numbers as to how people can get a hold of your book. Just log, log on to your computer, go to Amazon.com, and, and Overdosed America. My name is Dr. John Abramson, but if you just type in Overdosed America, you'll, Amazon.com will be happy to send you a copy at their discount. Uh, it'll arrive in a few days. And my, I wrote my book so people could defend themselves against this commercial deception of what we are led to believe is good medicine. Now, there are two parts to this. One is that certain drugs are overused and they present risks, and they're dangerous and expensive. The other right. part is even more important, which is because almost all of the medical knowledge that your doctor believes to be true has come to him or her because it has commercial value. What's happening is that doctors are ignoring the real keys to health, which are how to live a healthy lifestyle and how to get help when you're not able to live a healthy lifestyle. Two-thirds of our health is determined by how we live our lives. But because of all this direct-to-consumer advertising and because of all the financial relationships between doctors and patients and because the drug companies are bringing lunch into doctors' offices many times a week and doctors are getting this so-called free education, which means uh, 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 you know, propaganda to use their drugs, um, there's... There's this huge blind spot in American medicine about the benefits of taking care of ourselves. So there are two components to this. And Overdosed America will, it will arm you to use the healthcare system wisely, but more important, to take control of your own health and make your own decisions in an intelligent way. And the real reason why I wrote Overdosed America was to try and convince American doctors to try and show American doctors that they're swallowing the bait, hook, line, and sinker from the commercial entities and that it's time for physicians to stand up to these commercial interests and to stand up for the principles that made them decide to go into medicine, which is how to best serve their patients. I don't think that will work. <laughs> uh, I, just, I think that when you look at the power of money and the amount of money that is lavished on physicians that support the uh, the pharmaceutical industry and their their uh, payment for that, you and I both know it's not going to work for the docs not to uh, to cleanse themselves of that um, entity. But I think what will work is the awareness that the individual patient uh, uh, has by reading your book to understand that he has to take responsibility. He has to ask questions. It is very dangerous 
to put positions, any positions, on this pedestal of, I will do anything you say, doctor. So that your value of your book what should uh, um, cause people to question, to um, uh, actually ask about, why do I need this statin drug? You know, I'm 72 years old and I'm a woman. Show me the data. Well, it's, and, it's, uh, it's, even, it's even harder than that, Julian, because the doctor will believe that he or she has the data, and the doctor will show the patient uh, information that is going to have come directly or indirectly from the drug companies. But if the patient right. has my book in their hand and says, look, in, in the Chapter 9, the smoking gun cholesterol guidelines, and, right. and sees that I've, I've cited the literature. In fact, I'm now, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm now part of the literature and had an article published in The Lancet showing, showing that the, the cholesterol guidelines, uh, for using statins are dishonest. Uh, in The Lancet, one of the most prestigious medical journals, the patient has to be armed with the science because the doctor is going to believe that he or she knows the science, but it's the drug company's version of the science. Let's talk a little bit about that belief, John, because I know you came, you kind of saw the light uh, as we entered the 21st century, because uh, you were a very prominent uh, 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 physician in, in the Boston area. I know that you were um, uh, voted Doctor of the Year by the medical Associ- by the Massachusetts Medical Association several times. You were on the faculty of Harvard. And you were very much uh, excited and happy about your positioning in modern medicine until all of a sudden things unravel. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, it wasn't the Massachusetts Medical Society. I'm not on their uh, favorite uh, favorite doctor list. It was my peers. It was physicians themselves. Um, uh, okay. <clears throat> um, but this was before you wrote Overdosed America. Yes, absolutely. What happened, uh-huh. Julian, is this. I was teaching a course at Harvard called here Harvard Medical School called Healing and Spirituality, and I was explaining to medical students that to be a good doctor, you've got to understand science, and you've got to understand the metaphysics of science, that science studies the kinds of things that you can look at from a third-person perspective and measure, but that good doctors understand that there's more to reality than science. There's consciousness or soul or spirit or existence existential presence, whatever you want to call it. And I was writing a book about that. That fascinates me. And the illusion that we live in a world defined by science, is a, it, it creates a flat world, a one-dimensional world. Um, and I, I want to explain that to medical students so that they can be better doctors. I was well along the way writing that book when I came upon the data in the FDA's website about Vioxx and Celebrex. And I had been trained as a researcher 20 years earlier. I know how to read data. I looked at this data, and this data is the data that the, the drug makers sent to the FDA. There was no subversion of the data. There was no political attitude or editing of the data. It was just the pure data that the drug makers sent to the FDA about Vioxx and Celebrex. And that data showed that Celebrex is a useless drug. It's no safer on the stomach. And that Vioxx was a dangerous drug. It clearly caused more cardiovascular complications and more overall complications and was no, not clinically superior to naproxen or Aleve. Now, the New England Journal of Medicine and the Journal of the American Medical Association had run articles about these two drugs that were 180 degrees different. The articles that we doctors read in our most trusted journals 
said these were good drugs because they were gentler on the stomach and we would be doing our patients a service, basically, to by prescribing these drugs. When the manufacturers and the FDA knew that wasn't true. Now, I tried to explain that to my colleagues, that the truth was not in the medical journals we trust. The FDA knew it, and it was being hidden from us. And they thought I had gone psychotic. They thought I was absolutely nuts. And when I realized that the doctors were were physically incapable of understanding that they're being manipulated by the drug companies to believe things that are not true, that that led to many deaths in the United States. I'll talk about that in a sec. But when I realized that doctors were physically incapable of understanding that they were being misled, I realized I needed to write a book, which led to Overdosed America, and I needed to write it, as you say, Julian, not for doctors, but for the public, because the public is ready to hear it, even though doctors aren't. The upshot is that about 30,000 people, Americans, died from taking Vioxx. Ten times more Americans than died in 9-11. 30,000 Americans died from taking Vioxx, according to the FDA. And Merck is going to get off pretty much scot-free. They may not even lose any money from their total sales of Vioxx. They sold $10 billion worth of Vioxx. The settlement that they just made was for $4.5 billion. They may end up making money on this deal that killed 30,000 people. I know, and... It, it, I look at it with the, uh, debacle of the hormone replacement with Primpro, which was, um, you know, horse estrogens and, uh, an adulterated progesterone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the increase in heart disease and increase in breast cancer, uh, was so huge that when that particular product deflated from about two billion to eight hundred thousand, the death rate from breast cancer came down. There's a no, couple percentage points. No question, and, Julian. And I had that chapter written in my book before the Women's Health Initiative came out, and I thought I wouldn't be able to use it. But it's such a perfect example of how doctors get duped. There was an article in 1989 that showed that hormone replacement therapy in postmenopausal women increases breast cancer by 26%. And, the and that was with the use of Primpro, though. Uh, Primpro, yeah. Primpro-like drugs. Primpro okay. hadn't been put together yet. Yes. Um, absolutely. And the doctors were so convinced that these estrogens, artificial, uh, artificial hormones, were beneficial for women that they actually said that the 26% increase in breast cancer isn't that serious. Now, when <laughs> all was said and done and the Women's Health Initiative study came out, it was a 26% increase. This was 2002, you know, 13 years later. Uh, 26% of, uh, more, more breast cancers than the women who were taking the artificial hormones. Between those years, probably 400,000 women developed breast cancer who didn't need to if the doctors had done what they're supposed to do. Yes. You know, John, this, it has a double-edged sword for me because I think that, uh, hormone replacement therapy in women is excellent, helpful, viable, and safe. Because if you use bioidentical hormones, if you use the hormones that the woman was making to begin with that have much less estrone, we, I use a bioidentical hormone which is 80% estriol. That's one of the three estrogens that actually has anti-breast cancer effects. And I use natural human progesterone. It just, I pull my hair out every time I think about adulterating the natural product 
in order to patent it so that you can make additional money on it when you can just easily give natural human progesterone, which doesn't have the side effects. So I think we um, we now frighten people away from from uh, bioidentical hormones, which initially and theoretically would be safe. It's like the same hormones that they're taking, and particularly if you cut it with estriol. But um, you, now women are not going to get the benefits of hormone replacement therapy uh, because of the adulteration. Everyone does not make the association between the, the uh, non-natural hormone replacement therapy that caused all the problems and what would be the safe use of bioidentical hormones. But what yeah. do you think about that? Well, I think uh, the first part, uh, that it was to get a patent that the drug companies made these uh, non-bioidentical uh, hormones. There's no question about that. And I think I, on an intuitive basis, uh, one, it's easy to assume, and I think it's it's Dr. True. Abramson, we don't want to cut you short. We're going to come back with the rest of your answer with Dr. John Abramson, Dr. Julian Whitaker. I'm Deborah Ray. America's number one source for healthcare information, news, and medical breakthroughs. Making America healthy coast to coast. It's Healthy Talk Radio with Deborah Ray and Dr. Julian Whitaker. Dr. John Abramson joining us as well. The author of Overdosed America, required reading for all of us as healthcare consumers who want to make informed decisions on the basis of the science, what's best for us, risks to benefit ratio. And we but left that on the table, particularly as it relates uh, to the revelations from the Women's Health Initiative about the combination of Premarin and synthetic progesterone, a progestin known as Prempro. Please continue, Dr. Abramson. Yeah, uh, Dr. Whitaker was uh, mentioning about uh, bioidentical hormones and saying that uh, the reason why we got off track from bioidentical hormones is so the drug companies could make their money on their patented artificial hormones. No question about that, and no question that uh, the artificial hormones are not beneficial for postmenopausal women who are not having symptoms. Now, um, on the bioidentical hormones, I've got to say that I'm agnostic. I don't know. I've taken <laughs> I've taken a position in Overdosed America where I'm just doing straight. I'm just talking about the straight science. Uh, the people who disagree with me about uh, cholesterol lowering drugs, about antidepressants, about osteoporosis drugs, about horm- artificial hormones, they disagree with me not because they're reading the science better, but because they're reading the science worse even though they're claiming to be experts. And the American people don't have any protection from that. So when I speak publicly, I always stay just totally on the science. I have personal opinions like everybody else, um, but as a, as a public figure and as, in writing Overdosed America, I think it's my responsibility to stay totally focused on the science and bring the best possible science uh, awareness of the best possible science to the American people so that they've got something that they can trust as an anchor to decipher this complicated science that their doctors don't understand. So absolutely. I'm going to dodge the question, Julian. And you, 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 know, you, do dodge, you do absolutely excellent work in this area, and you're so vital to the information that we have. Um, well, thank you. Now, uh, what what do you see in the future? We have this we have this conundrum. We have number one, direct to consumer ads, 
which took Claritin from 800000 to several billion in about two years. We now have uh, direct-to-consumer ads about, you know, a fungus nail drug. And, you know, and legs. restless legs. I mean, we just are... we got a, we got a real problem, problem here. Uh, let me tell you, listeners, how serious our problem is. I'm, I'm kind of uh. a political junkie. Um, I was watching the Democratic debate, the last Democratic debate, and I was watching the reruns on CNN, and every other ad was a drug ad watching the, the candidates. They're taking too much money. We don't have a system for representing the American people's interests, and we've got to stand up for our rights. And we've and got to have you come back again. Book, folks. <laughs> our thanks to you, Dr. Abramson. Happy, healthy Thanksgiving to you. Thanks, thanks to you, uh, yeah. Deborah, Dr. Whitaker. It's always a pleasure. And Deborah, I remind you to live long, stay healthy.